Can everybody hear me? Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, welcome, and I'm glad you could be here this evening. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to gather in your name. We ask that our conversation is pleasing to you, and we desire to seek and then obey your will. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do this. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, tonight, we continue in the period of Pentecost, which lasted about 30 years, A.D. 33 to 65. Last week, Neil began our study of this period with a great teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Neil. And one of his roles, the Holy Spirit, not Neil's, was to launch the church. Yes. <laughs> yes. Was to launch the church with power which he did at Pentecost. Another role of the Holy Spirit is to grow the church. Think of the Holy Spirit as the one who applies the plan of redemption. This is what we'll discuss tonight. But before we do, there were some great discussion questions in our pre-work this week. So let's take about 15 or 20 minutes to discuss them or anything that you've read or studied this week that you'd like to talk about with your group. And table leaders, the questions that are there on the discussion page are there simply as recommendations or suggestions. Let the conversation go as the spirit leads, and we'll be back. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you had a good discussion. There were a couple of really great questions there to talk about. I don't have the bell. <laughs> I don't know where the bell is. I'm sorry. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Well, I hope you had a good time sharing your thoughts and comments with each other. Well, tonight, our main idea is something you've heard before and you've heard several times in this room. Our Lord has given us his church a mission. We're not only receivers or benefactors of the redemptive story. We are participants in the mission of the redemptive story. This mission precedes the new covenant and it has been revealed many times in the Old Covenant. So here's just an example of one of those passages. And again, there's going to be a lot of reading, so we can pass these around. Who would like to read the Isaiah passage? He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant and restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thank you. Tonight, I'm going to present in reverse chronology. I'm going to begin with the church today, and then we're going to move back to the events in Acts. So yes, we are going backwards. So let's talk about the church. There are many rich writings on the nature of the church. It's my hope that looking at some of these will really impress upon you, as it did me, what it means to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the church as people of God. Redemptive history demonstrates that God's purpose was not limited to redemption of just individuals. Instead, God's intent was to form a people. 
Now, the next verse we're going to read, we have been reading in here since day one of Casket Empty. We'll probably continue to read it again. By the time this is over, we're all going to know this verse. It's pivotal in terms of the redemptive story. Who would like to read Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Again. I know there's... Thank you. Thank you. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Thank you. The Old Testament foresaw a day when God would call Gentiles to himself. After Pentecost, the apostles believed this prophecy was fulfilled as God created a new multinational, multi-ethnic church. The church's identity as people of God is seen in terms of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Paul noted that the Gentiles had been grafted onto the people of God along with believing Israel. Pagans once cut off from God and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel became fellow citizens with the Jews in God's planned redemption. Indeed, now there is no Jew or Greek in the church. Peter, Peter uses language that was exclusively used for Israel. Now he applies it to the church. Would somebody please read 1 Peter 2 through 9? Thank you. And people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a peop the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you. Now John's end time vision is of a vast multitude from every tribe, people, and nation redeemed before God's throne. Look at this picture we get from Revelation. Who would like to read this? Thank you. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Thank you. Jesus commissioned his disciples to carry the gospel even to the ends of the earth. And we saw that last week in Acts 1.8. The multinational, multi-ethnic character of the New Testament church testifies not only to the universality of the gospel message, but also to the global extent of the coming reign of Christ. Thus, obedience to the Great Commission is not simply a function of the church, but it's essential to her identity as the people of God. Now, besides the Great Commission, there's another thing. Worship. Worship is not incidental because God has assembled a people to the praise of his glorious grace. 
Worship is necessary to the corporate life of the church. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God and Missions, John Piper makes a connection between worship and the diversity of nations. His premise is this, diversity magnifies God's glory. See, there's internal purpose in it. Would somebody please read Acts 17.26? From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Thank you. Piper argues that the origin of the peoples is not in spite of, but because of God's will and plan. He focuses the missionary task on all the nations. It is not a response to an accident in history. It is rooted in the purpose he had when he determined to make the nations in the first place. And there's another thing. God's purpose to have diversity among the nations is not a temporary one, only for this age. The diversity will not disappear from the new heavens and the new earth. God willed it from the beginning. It has a permanent place in his plan. So how does diversity magnify the glory of God? Piper offers four ways. First, there is beauty and power of praise that comes from unity and diversity that is greater than that which comes from unity alone. Psalm 96.3 says it gloriously. Would somebody please read this? His glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Thank you. Second, the greatness and worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. It becomes more universal as the diversity of the group continues. Three, the strength, wisdom, and love of a leader are magnified in proportion to the diversity of the people he can inspire to follow him with joy. Here the leader's appeal is universal. Now fourth, by focusing on all the people groups of the world, God undercuts ethnocentric pride. And therefore, all peoples depend on God's free grace rather than any distinctive of their own. And if we're being honest, this is not unique to the Old Testament Jews. This still happens today. In doing this, God is preparing for himself a people from all peoples who will be able to worship him with free, and I love how Piper puts this, white-hot admiration. You see, diversity magnifies God's glory. Remember the first night of this semester, Bob taught us that there's one hero in our story. It's Jesus Christ. You know what? We're watching the secular world through all of its hallowed institutions of government and academy attempt to achieve this unity in diversity. But see, they don't have our king. Once again, Jesus Christ and his revelation in scripture proved to be relevant because whether we live in a postmodern era, a modern era, or a pre-modern era, the current circular pro uh, secular project of diversity has already been addressed and resolved in Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about the church as a body of Christ. 
The church as the body of Christ is not merely a sectarian religious society. Jesus speaks of personally building this new community on the confession of his lordship. Would somebody please read Matthew 16, 16 through 18? Thank you. Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Thank you. The apostles recognized the birth of the church at Pentecost as the work of Jesus himself. Now, various terms are used in the New Testament to describe the church. Body of Christ, the new person, God's household. Paul repeatedly calls the church the body of Christ. Believers united to Christ in his death and resurrection. The persecution of the church, therefore, is the persecution of Christ himself. And we're going to talk about persecution in a minute. The body metaphor shows the unity of believers in Christ and emphasizes differing roles and differing gifts in the believers in the larger community. The description of the church as the body of Christ designates Jesus' rule over the community. As the exalted son of David, he exercises sovereignty by his spirit and by his word. Through his resurrection, he is named head of the church. And remember, we've established no resurrection, no story, no church. Okay, let's talk about the church as covenant community. The New Testament refers to the church as the pillar and foundation of truth. We're not a postmodern entity. We don't tear everything down and put nothing in its place. All right? From the beginning, the church was to serve as a confessional body, holding the, to the truth of Christ as revealed by the prophets and the apostles he had chosen. Would somebody please read 1 Timothy 3.15, and this is Paul speaking. Paul said, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Thank you. So how does our statement of faith as the Evangelical Free Church of America add to this discussion? Here's what we say. The statement of faith of the EFCA. The true church comprises those united by the Spirit into the body of Christ of which he is the head. Now we each come to God alone, but in coming to God we do not remain alone. We are simultaneously constituted into the corporate body of believers. Thus, if we're in union with Christ, God becomes our Father then all other believers united to Christ become our brothers and sisters. And if by virtue of our union with Christ we are a part of his body, then we are fellow members of that body with every other person who is in, also in communion with Christ. Therefore, we affirm that the true church comprises of all those united by the Spirit into the body of Christ of which he is the head. Now it goes on to describe the church. Right from, right from the um, uh, doctrine. This is a wonderful body. 
a body full of variety, with people of all sorts, differing in their interests and skills and gifts, but each playing a vital part in the well-being of the whole. Now, the, the verbiage starts to shift from corporate to local, but already we've begun to move from a discussion of the true church, which is universal in scope, encompassing all true believers of all time into the real-life community of people interacting in relationship found in what we call the local church. So let's look at the local church. The local church is a visible community manifesting the true church in the world. Generally in the New Testament, the church refers to a community visible in the world. Here in this local network of relationships, the gospel is embodied in the world and worked out in our lives. In each local church, Christ is present. And in the love displayed in its midst, and in the quality of the lives of its members living in the world, each local church is to demonstrate to the world something of the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Now, St. Francis of Assisi said it beautifully. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Time for a discussion question. Now, table leaders, I do have um, question number two, just a question listed, but I would like to give you some of the background. Now, we're talking about believers now. A believer you know tells you they don't see the need to belong to a church. They believe in God, check, and they do their best to live a good life, check. Or something that's happened recently, it's a new phenomenon. You have a family member or some friends who have not returned to church since the shutdown. They're streaming now. They're not attending. So how would you counsel or persuade them of the necessity for them to attend and participate in a local church? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you were able to help each other and come up with some ideas about maybe inviting someone to church. Um, I heard tonight that Tammy's teaching, and I'm beginning to think that's where the bell is, just, just so you know, okay? <laughs> I said, oh, I heard tonight that Tammy's teaching, and I think that's where the uh, bell is. <laughs> so we're going to move on now, and we're moving from the current church, and we're going back to the early church, and we're going to talk about the Nicene Creed for a minute. A creed is a statement of faith. In the early church, the creed was, Jesus Christ is Lord, the simplest form of a creed. But as times moved forward and the church continued to grow, it became necessary to explain what Christians believe in more detail. Creeds which are based on Scripture help to formalize our beliefs. For example, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about Jesus? Yes, that early creed told us he was Lord, but that statement doesn't explain that he's fully God and fully man, does it? How about the Holy Spirit? So you get the idea why we need creeds. One of the earliest creeds is the Nicene Creed. In it, there's a statement about the church. And since we are talking about the church tonight, let's look at the statement. The creed states that we believe in one holy, Catholic, 
an apostolic church. So let's break this down. One, Ephesians 4.3 expresses it so beautifully, I can't add anything to it. So would somebody please read Ephesians 4.3? Thank you. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope when we were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you. Can't add to that. Okay, holy. Holy comes from the Greek word, the same word as sanctified. It is God separating from the world or setting apart that which he chooses to devote to himself. That describes this room. Our word saint comes from sanctified, which is the same root as holy. You are a room full of saints if you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Catholic. Catholic comes from the Greek word meaning universal. And I think this case has been made tonight. The church has a universal appeal, correct? It is relevant to all people and all times. But now we come to apostolic. Good time for a discussion question. How do you understand that the church is apostolic? What does that mean? Well, thank you. So... If you wouldn't mind sharing, how do you understand the idea that the church is apostolic? What did you come up with? Anybody want to share? Yes. Excellent. So foundational the prophets and the apostles, the church is founded on, and then the terminology of apostle itself means being sent. Excellent. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sent on mission. And I loved that. And we got talking about the Great Commission and, you know, this weird phrase that we have on a lot of our walls about helping people find and follow Jesus. Um, You know, but there is a mission for the church. Yes. Um, And that that is, it's not just sent. When we talk about, it is not only a spiritual mission, nor is it only a physical mission. It is both. Thank you. Well done. Great discussion. Anyone else? Yes.
you read about Cain or Paul, these are Christians. Yes. And they give lectures to them in the pen. And then Cain just beats them. And it just seems it's so foolish. Thank you. They talked about being a, uh, doing what the apostles did in this day and age, praying for the power of the Spirit, sharing your testimony. Thank you. Beth. Thank you, Beth. Most apostolic churches reflect the key things of the apostles. Um, from now on, I have to tell you, in this side of the room, don't uh, look at your phones when I ask a question. No, no. <laughs> I forget that. <laughs> no. Well done. I, I like your ingenuity. Yes. These are great answers. Anyone else? Thank you for bringing it into today also. Yes. Mm. Thank you, Dustin. Maybe some practices might change, but the foundations are timeless. Thank you. Well said. Anyone else? Great answers. You pulled out things I didn't think about, so thank you so much for sharing. The apostolic comes to this point. All that you said, but let's flesh it out a little bit more. It's built on the witness of the apostles. Unlike us, which we are witnesses, they were eyewitnesses. We believe the witness or the testimony of the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. I'm going to say it again. The resurrection validates all that Jesus claimed to be, and without it, we have no story. But there's another aspect to the apostles' witness or testimony. In his book, Loving God, Charles Colson makes the case about the accuracy and the veracity of the apostles' witness from a personal crisis he experienced. In the 1970s, Colson was special counsel to President Nixon. In the early part of Nixon's second term, news began to surface of a break-in at the other political party's national headquarters. Accusations of spying were made, followed by a cover-up devised by those who worked for the president, including Colson. This is known today as the Watergate scandal. For a while, these close advisors circled the president. They had sacrificed their family lives and lucrative careers to enter government service. Only a few months earlier, the president had been reelected in a landslide victory. The war in Vietnam had ended. Things were looking good. Colson continues, think of the power, the prestige, and the privileges available to those of us who were his advisors. Yet, even with the prospect of jeopardizing the president, whom they had worked so hard to elect, and losing their power, prestige, and privileges, 
None of this was enough, enough of, a, of an incentive to make this group of close advisors contain and continue a lie. Any attempt on their part to assert that this was merely a concocted conspiracy against the president failed. This is what Colson writes. With the most powerful office in the world at stake, a small band of hand-picked loyalists, no more than 10 of us, hmm, sounds familiar, could not hold the conspiracy together for more than two weeks. Yes, they now face embarrassment and possible prison time, but not one of them faced the prospect of death. None of their lives were at stake. So what does this have to do with the apostolic testimony about the truth of the resurrection? One of the arguments against the truth of the resurrection, which persists to this day, is that the apostles, the actual eyewitnesses, took the dead body of Jesus, disposed of it, and then they claimed Jesus had risen from the dead. In other words, they created a conspiracy. Colson argues from first-hand experience, is it really likely that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetrate a lie about the resurrection, could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles? Isn't it more probable that at least one of the apostles would have renounced Christ before the, being beheaded or stoned? He concludes, take it from one inside the Watergate web looking out, who saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is. Colson says, nothing less than a witness as awesome as the resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and Lord. The apostolic identity of the church points to the eyewitnesses who died for what they claimed they saw. Our foundation strong. You see, they were not just witnesses. They were martyrs. And Dr. Palmer wrote, if you read this week's material, that martyrdom uniquely testifies to the death and resurrection of Christ. He also points out that persecution fuels the missionary expansion of the church. Now, this is a chart from the rise of Christianity. Of course, we know who the spreading flame is. It's the power of the Spirit. And here's the arithmetic of the growth of the church. We're looking at the first 300 years. You'll see the church has grown from about 1,000 in the early days to 6.3 million in that 300-year period. Although persecution existed in the first three centuries of the church, in the beginning, it wasn't always widespread. It was somewhat local. This changed in the third century when persecution of Christians became pervasive throughout the empire. These particular emperors were looking to extinguish the Christians. You can see the growth between 200 and 300, right? It goes from 0.36 to almost 2% to over 10%. This all happened in the century of great persecution. This all happened before Christianity was made legal in the Roman Empire. Does anybody have any idea when Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire? Close? 312. 325 was the creed. 312, yes. So do you see this? all this growth occurred during persecution? This week, 
One of our questions in the pre-work asked if we have ever personally experienced persecution for our faith. I haven't. Dr. Palmer stated, there have been more martyrs in the past 100 years than all previous centuries combined. Let that sink in. I didn't know this. You know, the Holy Spirit convicts us, right? And he made me realize that I don't pray regularly for the current persecuted church, and it exists. Their testimony calls for them to be martyrs, no different than the apostles. Palmer continues, may these deaths inflame the hearts of Christians today, <clears throat> excuse me, with renewed devotion. He then refers to a second century Christian leader by the name of Tertullian, who lived in Africa. He came to realize that the blood of the martyrs is the seed for the growing church. This is what the chart of the early church showed us. Hopefully, what this number of persecution today is telling us is there's a larger underground invisible church that exists today in which the persecution of these saints is bearing fruit. So let me ask, if I may, would you consider praying often for our brothers and sisters in the midst of all this? So let's continue to move back in time. This week, we read about Paul's sermon. So now we're going to go back to the scriptural time in Acts 13. This was the first missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas. Let's get on the right thing. I'm sorry. All right. Okay, thank you. The first missionary journey for Paul and Barnabas. They traveled to Antioch of Pisidia, which is located in the Roman province of Galatia. Galatians, okay? The residents consisted mainly of Greeks, but a small Jewish population was also located in the city. How do we know this? There was a synagogue. Now listen to this. The dating of this missionary journey was probably around A.D. 47 to 48, not even 20 years after the resurrection, and before the Jerusalem Council, which we know was held in A.D. 49. Would somebody please read Acts 13, 14? We're going into now our reading for the week. Let's take a look at this wonderful sermon. Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Thank you. doesn't take Paul long to jump on an opportunity, does it? <clears throat> In this synagogue, the congregation consisted of the Israelites, who were Jews by birth, and the Gentiles. There were Gentiles who recognized, I'm so sorry, excuse me for just a minute. <clears throat> See if I can. See if this will work. Me now? Okay. Thank you. 
The Jews who were, um, they were Jews by birth, the Israelites, but the Gentiles, there were Gentiles who recognized the God of Israel as the true God. There were converts. So Paul is addressing a group who worship Yahweh. The issue here is, how does he preach the gospel to those who place their trust in the conditions set forth in the old covenant since they already believe in Yahweh? So the question Paul needs to answer for them are three. In what ways does Jesus Christ and his work relate to Israel? Is there any relationship between Israel's rich religious history and the gospel? What was the role of the Jewish law and the new life? Now, in verses 17 to 23, Paul recounts the history of Israel, beginning with God's election of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the deliverance of the nation from bondage to Egypt. This approach would appeal to this congregation because it was their custom to retell the great events of their history, such as when they observed the Passover celebration. Now, the idea of a transcendent God. Okay, get out your phones. No. The idea of a transcendent God, and what do I mean by that? He is above and he's beyond. He surpasses the ordinary. The idea that this transcendent God would enter into human history to deliver his people was not a new concept to the people Paul was addressing. But the very notion that this God would enter human history <clears throat> to rescue even those outside of the covenant was new. More accurately, it was radical. And if we're honest, the radical nature of the gospel remains to this day. Paul gives us an example of skillfully using the sacred history of his listeners as the foundation on which to attach this radically good news. See what he's doing? In other words, Paul is looking for points of connection, and he's relating to this particular audience to share the gospel. He is modeling for us what we need to do today. We may not have the same audience, but we look at the same technique. So in verses 24 and 25, he introduces John the Baptist as the forerunner to the Messiah. Here's how he does it whose coming constituted the climax of the past history of salvation. This is what he doesn't do. He doesn't present John the Baptist as introducing the beginning of a new stage of salvation because he's not negating their history of which they identify. He's keeping the conversation going. This is in line with Paul's purpose of showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Now, in Acts 13, 26, here it is. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to, to us that this message of salvation has been sent. But the next two verses show Paul has to deal with an issue that proved to be a stumbling block for the Jews. Would somebody please read Acts 13, 27 to 29?
the Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Thank you, Jen. They could not conceive of a suffering Messiah. We talked about this, remember, in the period of the 400 years of silence. They couldn't conceive of it. Therefore, his own people rejected him. But Paul will declare that the resurrection is an act of God. And there are eyewitnesses to attest to that fact. We're only talking the year 47 and 48. The witnesses are still alive. The witnesses are still walking around. So here's what he says. Somebody please read 13, 30, and 31. Thank you, Bob. Paul has made the connection between the history of Jesus and the history of Israel. Connection. He, by showing that the death and resurrection of Jesus are now added, added to the record of God's saving, saving events. See, he starts with the Exodus. You see what he's doing? And now he's adding it. And his plan to make for himself a people. These events provide the foundation for Paul's conviction that the promises given long ago, all the way back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, right, had now reached the beginning of their fulfillment. Now, verses 38 and 39 form the climax of the sermon. Who would like to read these? Thank you. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Thank you so much. Through faith in the risen Christ, there is forgiveness of sin and justification for the sinner. To be justified is to be declared, to be declared not guilty, a status that could never be attained by keeping the regulations of the law. It is only attained through faith in Christ. He has accomplished what the law of Moses could not. Therefore, the relationship between Christ and the law is that Christ has fulfilled the law. And he tells us this. Jesus tells us this. It's recorded in Matthew 5.17 in the Sermon on the Mount. So how can we bring this model into application today? What are the points of intersection we can make in contemporary context? Because that's the purpose of the academy. How are we going to do this, right? So here's our discussion question. One of the stumbling blocks of the gospel today is that Jesus, being the only way to salvation, is viewed as exclusive. Now, do you know in the New Testament time, you know what the problem with Jesus was to the people? He was inclusive. Right? That, okay. But now, so, exclusive today is a trigger word. Nobody wants to be characterized as supporting exclusive ideas. We don't want to see ourselves that way, right? So, how would you overcome this current objective to the gospel? Let's 
Well, thank you. Hopefully this is just the beginning of practicing, but you can look at Acts 13 as a wonderful model of relating and connecting. Next week um, in our homework, in, in week eight, you're going to ask to be telling your personal story and beginning to use your personal story to draw people into the kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're just beginning. Jesus is always going to cause a problem with the secular world because the gospel is radical. But we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to do this mission. So let's look at the reaction to Paul's sermon back in Acts 13. Can somebody please read Acts 42 through 43? Thank you. The initial reaction was good. We want to hear more, they say. Come back next week. But let's continue. What happens? Anybody like to read? Thank you. Thank you. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Thank you. And he'll continue with the verse we read first this evening. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Our whole conversation tonight, and Jesus is still considered exclusive. It's amazing, isn't it? So let's take a look at the Jerusalem Council. Now that the Gentiles are entering the church body in noticeable numbers, questions regarding requirements for God's covenant people arise, right? Do Gentile believers follow Jewish tradition? Mainly, do they have to be circumcised? Can you hear the conversations? Well, surely that's going to be required, right? Because we're circumcised and our leaders are circumcised. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? They discuss the matter with the apostles and the elders. You know, growth is wonderful, but growth presents problems because the church is made up of broken people. So we see, even in the earliest days of the church, a need for a council of elders and officials. And they settle the matter. God's covenant people will no longer require to be circumcised. A letter is prepared and sent out, which reads. Who would like to read that? Seems good to the Holy Spirit, to us, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality, you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Thank you. The universal character of the church is recognized. The work of the Holy Spirit continues to this day. 
the early church leaders modeled for us boldness to the point of death, and they were relentless in their maintaining the accuracy and veracity of their testimony. Why did they, and why do we continue in this mission? Let's see what Jesus said. Who would like to read that? Thank you. So let's go to the end of the story, the book of Revelation in the last chapter. It's a preview of coming attractions. If you take a look at Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you, John, this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Here's what he's telling us. I am the messianic king. I'm the one who will sit on the throne forever. I am the heir of David. And morning star refers to the fact that he is the savior. It continues. The Holy Spirit and the bride, which is the church, say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Now watch this. This is the end of, the, of our revelation. Listen to this. Whoever is thirsty... Let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Still offering the gospel at the end of the story. Okay, Revelation 22, 20a. Jesus says, me, he who testifies to these things say, yes, I am coming soon. But what does the church have to do first before he comes? Share the gospel with the who? Everyone, the world, right? Now watch this. And the church responds to this with the great longing and anticipation. These are the last words of the church in the book. Come, Lord Jesus. Until then, the mission continues. So next week, we conclude the period of Pentecost. Lance Nelson We'll talk more about the importance of building relationships as we seek to obey our Lord, who has given us his church a mission. So I'm going to close in prayer, but if I may ask if you would stay after the prayer, Sarah has a couple of announcements. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we look forward to the day when we will be with the whole church who will praise you by saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. But while we wait, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who enables us to fulfill our mission and bear fruit for your kingdom. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray and we all say, Amen. Thank you so much for your patience with us. I appreciate it.